Hi, I'm Stephen Webb, host of Touring Heaven, your tour guide and traveling companion, and I'd like to invite you to come with me on a tour of heaven. This time, we're heading to the mountains around Jackson, Wyoming, but not to the expensive ski resorts in our physical world. We're going to visit St. Germain in our etheric bodies, in a place with the mysterious name, the Cave of Symbols. This etheric retreat has nothing to do with worldly skiing, and the term cave doesn't exactly describe the opulence or the technology there. Far from being a tourist resort, the Cave of Symbols is more like a major technology and teaching facility. Not high-tech, celestial tech. And when you visit, you'll realize why the masters are so careful about the technology they release or don't release into our war-prone world. But the most important reason for visiting St. Germain is to understand his real long-term care for you. We're going there to find out what that means. St. Germain's retreat, the Cave of Symbols, is inside a mountain, Table Mountain, a few miles west of Grand Teton Mountain. I've already hinted that visiting this retreat is going to be memorable and that you might not be quite ready for what you see, even on an introductory visit. That's okay. We'll pace our visit so there'll be enough for now and plenty more to absorb on future visits. But first, before our angels arrive to take us there, I really have to tell you about St. Germain himself. Remember how I've talked about the previous lives of the Masters we've met? This is so that when you meet the Master, you'll have a sense of his or her contribution to our civilization over many thousands of years. The thought to hold on to is, what will you as an apprentice working with the Master contribute to civilization now and in the future? This thought is important because there's more to being alive on earth than your day job or remembering what happened yesterday. What I'm about to tell you covers a lot of time in the prehistory of our civilization and a lot of world events that were not so great. Dark ages happened. That's why it's so important to guard the principles that tie us to God and the upward progress of civilization. The civilization we have now, our standard of living, is what you could think of as a platform. The platform delivers generational progress best without war or economic disruptions or major earth changes. Our descendants, grandchildren and beyond, will need to stand on this platform in order to make earth more and more like heaven. This focus on improving the platform has been our father's business since the beginning of time. Jesus and St. Germain have served God for eons in many lives. Some were humble roles, and in other lives, they had civilization-building responsibilities. One of the most important initiations for the souls of both these masters occurred tens of thousands of years ago. Our Bible mentions the priesthood of Melchizedek, a universal priesthood of heaven combining the perfect religion and the perfect science. Melchizedek himself is described in Hebrews as being, by interpretation, king of righteousness, king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Unquote. 
made like unto the Son of God. This sounds like an immortal appearing among mortals in our octave for an important purpose during the time of Abraham. Initiates in the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek were and still are schooled in their etheric bodies at the retreat of Archangel Zadkiel in the Temple of Purification, located in the etheric octave over the Caribbean island of Cuba. The huge contrast between the pure land of heaven and the totalitarian regime in the physical, occupying the same space in separate frequencies, is notable. It was there long ago, in the Temple of Purification, that both St. Germain and Jesus received the sacred anointing, spoken by Zadkiel himself. Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So that is going to explain a lot about both Jesus and St. Germain. It's important to know that current and future events have these ties going back into our prehistory. How far back? Long before the civilizations of Lemuria in the Pacific or Atlantis in the Atlantic reached their heights of achievement, there was a Golden Age nation of high attainment in northern Africa, where the Sahara Desert is now. Over 50,000 years ago, the Sahara was a lush tropical paradise, the world-leading civilization of that time. The soul of Saint Germain, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, was the ruler of this high civilization at its peak. Like all of God's creation then and now, these people of great attainment were tested at their peak on their free will choice of what they valued the most. Their choice was... They could turn their interests and great abilities to material and sensual pursuits in an effortless period of decadence, or toward upward progress into greater spiritual heights, approaching the perfection of heaven. The spiritual pursuits were the unknown adventures. The material interests was history repeating itself. We're facing a similar prospect at a fork in the road of our civilization now. And no surprise, this glorious nation in the Sahara chose the sensual. The royal family, including Saint Germain as the monarch, withdrew into the etheric city over the Sahara. The civilization decayed under more indulgent leadership, collapsed under its own contradictions, and has been a desert for thousands of years. Did this mean Saint Germain abandoned his people 50,000 years ago because they made the wrong choices? No. Follow the embodiments of St. Germain over the millennia of known history and you'll get a sense of where they reincarnated under different names and were tested again and again, as he was in every life he lived among them. The Akashic records show that about 1,500 years before the cataclysmic fall of the civilization of Atlantis, the soul of St. Germain in his role as a priest forever was a high priest in the Violet Flame Temple on the mainland of Atlantis. His role for his people, then, was to sustain a pillar of fire of violet flame by his invocations to draw down from God this perpetual miracle of transmutation. The violet flame pillar was no fire as we know it, but a sacred fire. It was miraculous because people who had binding afflictions where their spiritual, mental, or physical health were compromised in that life could pray to God for help and the flame would invisibly dissolve the karmic record of life's mistakes that were the cause behind their suffering. The violet flame pillar in the temple was always available 24-7 because St. Germain cared for his people and kept his God-appointed station to serve them. 
Those who would avail themselves of the miracle violet flame through prayer received God's blessing of freedom from their pain. But you know the story of Atlantis, the encroachment of tyrants and wicked priests in the government and the temples. Their lust was for power and control over the people, but the end result of their rivalries was anarchy. The consequence was cataclysm, because God would not sustain the decadence in his presence. And while Noah was building his ark, St. Germain and a few faithful priests were called by God to transport the sacred flame of freedom from the Temple of Purification, from what we think of as Cuba, to far away Eastern Europe, to the Carpathian foothills of what is now Romania. The freedom flame was re-established in the etheric foothills of the area and has positively affected Eastern Europe ever since. The next embodiment of St. Germain that we know about was thousands of years later among the ancient Hebrews. Around 1100 BC, he lived with his people as the prophet Samuel, serving as the last of Israel's judges and the first of her prophets. Like the latter days of Atlantis, it was a time of decadence in ancient Israel. Again, there were corrupt priests and the constant danger of annihilation or enslavement by the Philistines. Samuel courageously led his people in a spiritual revival, pleading with them to return unto our Lord with all your hearts and to put away the strange gods. The people realized he was right and they encouraged him to pray for their survival. And then in a crucial battle against the Philistines, a violent thunderstorm helped the Hebrew army win against overwhelming odds. St. Germain, as the prophet Samuel, stayed loyal to his people, even when his own sons turned out to be corrupt judges. And the Hebrews backslid again, demanding a king, so that they could copy the customs of the Philistines. The first Hebrew king, King Saul, was also corrupt, as Samuel had warned. And so one of his last acts for his people was to secretly anoint David as the next king. Then, 1100 years later, the soul of St. Germain re-embodied among the Hebrews again, this time as the Nazarene carpenter, Joseph, the father of Jesus and husband of Mary. Joseph acted decisively on a dream, where an angel warned him that King Herod planned to kill Jesus, considering the infant a threat. Returning from Egypt after Herod's death, Joseph taught the boy Jesus to be a carpenter, and then passed on during Jesus' teen years. In the late 200s AD, the soul of St. Germain lived as St. Alban, the first Christian martyr of Britain. Alban was a pagan Roman soldier who retired in the Roman province of Britannia during the persecution of Christians under Emperor Diocletian. Out of compassion, the Roman retiree, Alban, hid a fugitive Christian priest named Amphibolus, who converted him to Christianity. When Roman soldiers searched Alban's home, he disguised himself as the priest and bought time for the actual priest to escape. Alban was sentenced to death and beheaded, along with his appointed executioner, who also converted to Christianity. An important thing to know about St. Germain, whose name simply means Holy Brother, is that he's always had simultaneous civilization-building projects, physical and etheric, going on at the same time. The vision has always been the long game. Take the example of the eight centuries of philosophical development of the ideas of Plato. From Plato's innovations in reasoning from around 420 BC to 350 BC in Athens, 
The foundation of Western thinking evolved over centuries into what is known as Neoplatonism, which greatly influenced Christianity. One of the most influential Neoplatonists was Proclus, whose writings extended to almost every department of learning, from spirituality, philosophy, and astronomy, to mathematics and grammar. The influence on Christianity stemmed from Proclus' principle that there is only one reality, the unformed one which is God. From the unformed God, a hierarchy of individuality appears in form, and it's possible to understand the whole as a self-transcending good. From the unformed one emanates the divine intellect. From that, the one divine soul. And from that, the individual soul, which in great diversity experiences material life and learning. Proclus acknowledged that his enlightenment and philosophy came from above. St. Germain, working from etheric or heavenly levels, was the master teacher behind Proclus's detailed system and the understanding it offered about the organization and divine purpose of heaven appearing in man on earth. In another life of influential sponsorship of Christianity, behind the scenes, the soul of St. Germain re-embodied again in Britain around 300 years after his life as the Roman veteran Alban. This life was in post-Roman Britain as the godly sage Merlin, the alchemist, prophet, and counselor at the court of the historical King Arthur. King Arthur was an embodiment of El Moria. Post-Roman Britain in the late 400s and early 500s AD was a dangerous place, splintered by warring kings and invading Saxons and Merlin coached and guided Arthur through twelve battles against enemy kings, which were actually twelve spiritual initiations that Arthur had to pass to unite Britain as one kingdom. Merlin worked side by side with the king to establish the sacred fellowship of the round table to provide the camaraderie and support for Arthur's initiations. Under the guidance of Merlin and Arthur, Camelot was more than a castle. It was a mystery school where the knights and ladies were to develop an inner and outer understanding that the Holy Grail was the divine spark of God cupped in each one's invisible etheric flame behind their physical heart. If they exercised this understanding and communal harmony that God was in them, the wars would end and Britain would become a united kingdom. But in an echo of the fall of Atlantis and ancient Israel, Camelot the sacred school was infiltrated by the wicked, who by gossip and malice misdirected and divided the knights. The promise of unity and holiness fell, and dark centuries followed across Europe. To help dispel the despair, poverty, ignorance, and dark age superstition of his people, St. Germain was reborn around 700 years later, again in Britain, and became the experimental scientist Roger Bacon. He was a philosopher, Franciscan monk, and educational reformer at the universities of Oxford and Paris. He was perfect for his time, a promoter of the scientific method of experiment over dogma, and he predicted the hot air balloon, flying machines, prescription glasses, the telescope, the microscope, the elevator, mechanically propelled ships and cars, and wrote about them as if he'd actually seen them. This was three centuries before the Renaissance. It was St. Germain's long-term vision for opening the narrow parameters of science during feudal times. Interestingly, it was Roger Bacon and his Opus Magus who wrote that the sea to the west of Spain was navigable all the way to India.
Not exactly correct, but heading in the right direction. Was he remembering traveling in his etheric body westward from Europe to the Royal Teton Retreat? Even more interesting, about 150 years later, St. Germain re-embodied in Genoa, Italy, and grew up to become the navigator and explorer Christopher Columbus. Columbus combined the Sea to the West of Spain quote from Roger Bacon with prophecy from the Book of Isaiah in his appeal to the Spanish monarchs for funding a three-ship expedition to India in 1492. It worked to the extent that he discovered the New World rather than a new passage to India. The soul of St. Germain was certain that making the vision of a new heaven and a new earth a physical reality in the form of the New World of the Americas was the way out of the oppression of the Dark Ages for his people. St. Germain plays the long game for the soul, one life's achievements being the foundation for the next. Let's look at how he leveraged his lives of service as Roger Bacon and Christopher Columbus toward the development of this new world of the Americas. In the pre-life planning for what would be his final physical life, his soul requested that God would release the rest of his negative karma all in that one dramatic life. That explains a lot. He was born in England once again, 55 years after his life as Columbus ended. His mother was Queen Elizabeth I of England, his father, Lord Leicester. They were married, but the Queen had a short-term vision and was determined to avoid any threat to her rule, from the Spanish as well as from inside her own family so Queen Elizabeth didn't share the throne with her husband and disavowed their first son and her heir, Francis. Francis, who should have become Francis I, King of England, grew up as Francis Bacon with the surname of his loving foster family. He was close to them but didn't resemble any of them in appearance. The Queen allowed Francis to be part of her administration now and then, but never publicly acknowledged him or his younger brother Robert, Earl of Essex. Consequently, Elizabeth died without an heir, and Francis was denied the crown of England. If that sounds unmotherly and unfair, Francis thought so too. But remember, pre-life he asked God to allow him to deal with all of his remaining karma. Francis Bacon grew up to become the greatest mind the West ever produced. Ostracized from Elizabeth's court, he gathered a small group of writers around him, who, using more than a hundred pseudonyms, were responsible for almost all of the cornucopia of Elizabethan literature. Francis Bacon was the author of the Shakespeare plays, evidenced in secret code within the plays. He was responsible for organizing the translation of the King James Bible, added thousands of new words to the English vocabulary was a founder and investor in the American colony of Virginia and was the driving force behind the English Renaissance in literature, law, and science. While he would have been an outstanding king of England, the duties of a monarch would have precluded his greater achievements behind the scenes. He mastered the tests of apparent injustice, retained his humility, and began to make the long-term vision practical so his people would not perish. In directing the advancement of civilization through literature and technology, Francis Bacon's vision was to free his people from their karma, which was the cause of their misery, their ignorance, and the drudgery of sheer survival. 
The ciphers or codes hidden in the Shakespeare plays describe his tormented life at court and how he found resolution through service to the people of the whole world. He also served the next monarch after Elizabeth, the immoral King James I, until ostracized again from the court. And with his identity as Francis Bacon becoming useless to his service, the ciphers show he attended his own funeral in 1626, and being quite alive and with a sense of humor, traveled and taught under different names throughout Europe for 58 more years, until his ascension in 1684. You'd think that after this amazing life as Francis Bacon, successfully dealing with all of his remaining karma, he would have left us for the peace of Nirvana, the highest levels of heaven. But as a bodhisattva like Kuan Yin, one who hears the world's cries, St. Germain was still developing the long game in Europe and America. While he was investing time and care in the development of the American colonies, St. Germain returned to Europe in the mid-1700s, with an unusual dispensation. As an ascended master now, he was allowed by God to return to our physical world, visible like us, under the name Le Comte de Saint-Germain, a French noble. Again working behind the scenes, Saint-Germain attempted to guide a smooth transition for the decadent European monarchies toward representative government. The monarchs of Europe thought he was an interesting man, but none of them followed his advice for democratic reform. The result for Europe was the guillotine, the tragedy of the French Revolution, a complete inversion of freedom, and the consequent spread of the Luciferian ideals of class warfare and socialism progressing to anarchy. While Saint-Germain was trying to persuade the European courts, he was also active behind the scenes in the American colonies. The British monarch, King George III, had no intention of following his advice about representative government any more than the French king. The contrast between the American Revolution and the French debacle had a lot to do with the qualities of a few good people, founders such as Washington and Franklin and the signers of the Declaration of Independence, whom Saint-Germain had known in previous lives. The takeaway from knowing about Saint-Germain's long-term involvement in the discovery, founding, independence, constitution, and development of the United States is that this is an investment of love that is only increased. This love is for the victory of the mission of the rescuers who came here with Sana Kamara so long ago. Saint-Germain is even more active in the well-being of the people and the institutions of the Republic now as he was at its founding. He's our holy elder brother and the ongoing spiritual sponsor of the regathering of the rescuers who need to be reminded of the unfinished mission. As an ascended master, though, by cosmic law, St. Germain's ongoing intercession in our affairs can only be by our invitation in prayer. Now let's call our escort angels in and get going to the Rockies to visit the Cave of Symbols and to meet St. Germain himself. You may remember his soul from knowing him personally in prehistory in the Sahara, Lemuria, Atlantis, ancient Israel, ancient Greece, ancient Britain, medieval Spain, Elizabethan England, or any number of his lives that are not publicly known. Think about the depth and duration of his caring for God's people, even when we were looking the other way, completely unaware of the long game. Now's the time to catch up with our holy brother. Hold on to the strong, warm arm of your bright blue angel, and we're up and on our way.
This is going to be amazing. At the speed of thought, we're blazing up through the meandering dreams of our sleeping self, and in our etheric body, we're high up in the starry night sky over the Rockies. Below us, the snow-capped Rocky Mountains appear as a maze of white and brown, but our angels know exactly where we're going and turn west as we approach the Grand Teton. Now we're beginning to descend toward an ordinary-looking mountain thousands of feet below, and we're circling around the snowy summit. Like our first visit to the Royal Teton Retreat, we see a substantial snow-covered ledge just below the summit, and this ledge is where our angels gently touch down. There's an open door we didn't see before, and light is shining out onto the snow. We thank our angels and turn toward the brightly lit doorway, looking for our guiding master to step forward. Uh, A split second and a double take, and I seem to be the first one to recognize our guiding master is St. Germain, waiting for everyone else to remember him as he stands in the light of the doorway. My job as your traveling companion is to adjust to the unexpected and to make the introductions now before we go inside. St. Germain is gracious and greets us one by one with a key word to trigger a memory for those who don't remember him by appearance. One of the reasons the Ascended Masters don't appear to us visibly in our physical world is that we have this habit of judging people by their height and their build, their posture, hair, clothing, makeup, tattoos, reputation, rumors, politics, our cars, our neighborhood, ethnicity, gender preference and fashion sense, high or low. What a minefield. The masters know we have this habit ingrained in us, and even if they appeared to us as the most beautiful figure imaginable, we would likely fall on our faces in idolatry and not remember a word they said. That's why we visit heaven in our more objective, etheric bodies with long memories of friendship with the masters and angels, even if it's from thousands of years ago. It's pretty much impossible to take our eyes off St. Germain as he ushers us out of the snow inside, genuinely glad to see the etheric part of us. Like Jesus, he's not tall, but he is immaculate in appearance, with brushed back, blondish hair, blue eyes, and a trimmed beard. It's like suddenly being in the presence of a great and majestic king. I I can't actually focus on what he's wearing because it's not important, In the radiance of his presence is such an overwhelming gladness to be in his company again, and yet his decorum and dignity help us to manage our feelings and follow him into the dazzling brightness of millions of pink and white crystals around the walls and ceiling of a kind of cavernous foyer or entrance area. There's so much that leaps to mind to want to say to a close and dear brother, but there's an important purpose to this visit, and the tour goes on. We move into a much larger place, easily 200 feet across and more like a a high-ceiling chamber than a room. Here the walls and the ceiling are covered, this time with radiating crystalline structures somewhat like stalactites. But unlike ordinary stalactites, they have a geometric order and appear to be arrays of ancient symbols shining all of the colors of the rainbow at us. There's a functional purpose to these symbols and colors. St. Germain tells us the arrays of symbols are amplifiers of the energy of the Word of God, invisibly blazing the release of Fohat, 
Think God speaking, let there be light, perpetually extending through the mountain and in all directions across the nation and the planet. The effect of this constant radiating energy influences the etheric memories of the people. It prompts their intuitive faculties about their forgotten inheritance as sons and daughters of God and keys into the spiritual blueprint of what heaven would look and feel like in our physical world. That would be the reality of a self-transcending golden age of abundance and peace. The pattern is always radiating, unseen, in the ethers of our world. On the other side of this great chamber of shining symbols, there are three large, perfect arches, with about 20 feet between them. The shining glow of the wall and the arch to the left is a deep rose color. In the center, it's a bright white, and to the right, a cobalt blue. St. Germain raises his hand toward the center arch, and a great door opens to a tunnel, and we walk for several hundred feet to another door, etched with more ancient symbols we don't understand. This door opens, and we enter a 12-sided domed room, about 60 feet across, and four of the 12 sides are made of a glowing white substance. The other eight are in pastel colors. This is the room where the celestial technology begins. Saint Germain has us gather around a piece of hardware he describes as a radio. But this is far from the limits of what we think of as a radio. This device opens communication with other people on the etheric octaves throughout our solar system, as well as in the etheric center of the Earth. Who was going to tell us there's someone to talk to on the etheric level of the other planets, like Mercury and Venus, and there's people on the etheric in the center of the Earth? If we knew about this in our physical world, what would our habitual response be? There are research labs beyond the communications room that are also beyond our understanding. We're told the research involves the refinement of celestial-level chemical and electrical technology. But the research, Saint-Germain tells us, isn't anything new to the masters. It's actually ancient technology that existed during the Atlantean civilization. It was misused and was one of the factors leading to the destruction of that nation of 60 million people. To prevent our competing military-industrial complexes from misusing it again, the ancient locations are still hermetically sealed under the floor of the Atlantic. Don't bother looking. We're nowhere near ready for it yet. When we can prove that there's no more greed and selfishness, dishonest financial policies, war, surveillance, and control of the people, then the masters will release this technology again. Until then, they've seen this before. Saint Germain explains the reason we're being shown technology we're not ready for is that he's training a large group of souls in their etheric bodies, souls who are devoted to the Christ and the science of the Christ, to be ready in this or the next life to have lowered into their outer waking consciousness all that they've learned about this technology and its correct use in the onset of a self-transcending golden age. To permit heavenly technology to be used on a daily basis on the physical earth, you might imagine it could only occur in the permanent absence of the global military-industrial complex and the financiers who benefit from war. In another room, St. Germain presents us with an even higher form of celestial technology, 
Like the radio, it's understated, appearing simply as a beautiful golden chair. But this is no ordinary chair that we might relax in at home. Think of the speed of the electrons rotating in the atoms of your physical body. That specific rotational speed makes you visible and touchable. Compare with the speed of the electrons rotating in the atoms of your etheric body. That speed makes your etheric body invisible, lighter than air, and able to travel to heaven. Compare again to the electrons in the light bodies of angels and ascended masters. That speed, light speed, makes them free from human karma and immortal. The function of the golden chair accelerates the electron speed of your etheric body and in some cases the mental, emotional and physical bodies as well. The function depends on the needs of the mission. It's only for initiates of the masters who have proven their merit by service and long-term devotion to the light. They have to have already balanced a considerable portion of their negative karma. The acceleration process helps throw off portions of misqualified energy that impede the rotation of the electrons so that the density of the mental, physical, emotional, and memory bodies is lifted. It's an extremely precise exposure for a prescribed length of time so an initiate can complete a service on Earth that would be otherwise impossible. Why is it so precise an exposure? It's because this stream of sacred fire is an apportioned amount of the same ascension current that Jesus, St. Germain, and other masters experienced as the transfiguration, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension into the light. You and I might not be ready for those initiations yet. These initiations are the culmination of extraordinary service to God. In rare cases, when a son or daughter of God has met the requirements for the next stage of their soul's evolution, meaning immortality, the acceleration process raises the soul into the ascension as an act of grace. Remember Jesus disappeared into a cloud of light on Bethany Hill. What would it take to move the heart of God for this act of grace for you? The equation includes merit by service to God and man and long-term devotion to the light. The balancing of at least 51% of your particular negative karma and completion of your unique mission in the physical world. In case we were to get too far ahead of ourselves, St. Germain leads us towards an elevator, explaining that the blending of devotion to the light with applied celestial science is always practical. To illustrate his point, we enter the elevator and descend about a hundred feet and walk out into a circular lobby. A doorway leads us to a manufacturing plant deep inside Table Mountain. The whole floor is dedicated to processing raw materials into the hardware and devices we've seen on the upper levels of the retreat. It's immaculately clean and unexpectedly quiet. Walking around, we don't recognize the purpose or functions of any of these celestial tech machines. While we're looking left and right at processes we can't describe, the Master leads us on through a maze of compact linked systems. And then St. Germain says he wants us to see something quite different. And so we return in the elevator to an upper level we hadn't noticed before. On this level, beyond the reception area, are sleeping quarters. Again, immaculate. As we're walking out of the area, along a hall, we're about to ask questions like, when do masters need to sleep? But we stop in mid-thought 
and look up. St. Germain stands just ahead of us in the entrance to a huge concert hall. We walk in, still looking up at clouds moving slowly in a bright blue sky. For a split second, there's a thought that we've just traveled to another above-ground retreat. But we haven't. We're still in the concert hall. High above us, the domed ceiling appears to be the sky, and we feel like we're in the open air in daylight. It's some kind of celestial art. Three-dimensional photorealism for the Ascended Masters who attend concerts here. Performances of the music of the spheres by the musicians of heaven. How did they do this? We've been getting used to expecting the unexpected, but we're speechless again, thinking this has to be the finale on our tour. But every tour is different, and there's more. Based on where we're heading, if I remember right, it's personal. The place we're going to now is called the Crystal Chamber. St. Germain asks us to wait in a reception room, and one by one, he invites us into the crystal chamber. On the far side is a large, wall-sized mirror known as the Cosmic Mirror. You would not want to stand here without the Master next to you. Why? Because anyone standing in front of this mirror has to have a certain minimum level of attainment before the Master would consider being a kind of chaperone. This is about seeing yourself, your original self, as an extension of our Father, the formless idea of love projected into material form as you for a specific mission. The cosmic mirror shows you the etheric you, your original blueprint as a divine expression in heavenly material form. But each of us has recently come from the lower physical material experience. We who were once native to heaven have found ourselves in a state below heaven and now have an interest in making the extraordinary effort to return permanently. On our return, we will have some stories to tell. They're on display right here in front of each of us as documentary-like evidence in the cosmic mirror. You don't need to know my stories. You have your own. In some parts, they're not pretty. And that's why the Master is close by to limit the exposure. In future visits, there will be plenty of opportunity to get into the gritty detail of decisions made long ago, debts that need to be made good in our world for the love of God. There's also a lot of good that you've done, otherwise Saint Germain would not have invited you here and being ready to stand with you. It takes an extraordinary effort to move the heart of God, and you're doing it. However, what you see here in the mirror is private, for you and St. Germain only. There's still more that St. Germain wants to show us. Remember, he wouldn't be working with us if he didn't see both the need and our effort. We walk with him from the crystal chamber to the far end of the concert hall, where there's an anteroom and then a concealed door that opens in St. Germain's presence. On the other side of the door, we enter individually in silence, into not so much a room as a sphere of light. Only a few are permitted to enter here and only for specific purposes related to enhanced service in our world. It's for immersion in a whirl of penetrating sacred light, having certain divine qualities that allow initiates to complete seemingly miraculous work on earth. 
The type of souls who would receive this carefully calibrated boost of sacred fire here in the sphere of light would go unnoticed in our world. They would be the humble ones, long-suffering and dedicated to helping others. Those who have longed for the return to heaven are required to pay the price of service to others over many lifetimes. During these centuries, God, through His sons and daughters in heaven, keeps an eye on our schedule. If we get behind schedule, grace is offered to us if we ask for help and move God's heart. The cosmic mirror, the golden accelerator chair, the sphere of light, and the good counsel of masters like St. Germain is available any time and adjusted according to whether we're on schedule. Back outside the sphere, seated in big, comfortable audience chairs at the top of the concert hall, with the realistic, open, blue sky above us, St. Germain motions for us to lean in a bit closer. His voice is warm and brotherly. I am an ascended being, but it has not ever been thus, not once or twice, but for many incarnations I walked the earth as you now do, confined to mortal frame and the limitations of dimensional existence. I was on Lemuria, and I was on Atlantis. I've seen Civilizations rise and fall. I've seen the undulations of consciousness as mankind have cycled from golden ages to primitive societies. I have seen the choices, and I've seen mankind, by wrong choices, squander the energies of a hundred thousand years of scientific advancement and even degrees of cosmic consciousness that transcend that which is attained by members of the most advanced religions of the day. Yes, I have seen the choices, and I have chosen. By right choices, man and woman establish their position in hierarchy. By choosing to be free in the magnificent will of God, I won my freedom from that mortal round of incarnations and justifications of existence outside of the one. You are mortal. I am immortal. The only difference between us is that I have chosen to be free and you have yet to make the choice. We have the same potential, the same resources, the same connection to the one. I am Saint Germain and I have come to claim your soul and the fires of your heart for the victory of the Aquarian Age. I have set the pattern for your soul's initiations. I am on the path of freedom. Take that path, and you will find me there. I am your teacher if you will have me. There's a quiet moment as we each realize St. Germain just offered us a choice that would echo for a long time. To not take the offering would have consequences. Our life in our world would continue as it had. To take the offering would have consequences. Our life would accelerate into a holy pattern of soul initiations that would require the steady steps of gradually letting go of all selfishness. Instead of anxieties, doubts, and confusions, we would sense the measured beat of overcoming these with the exhilarating feelings of love, victory, and freedom. It would be a life journey into the undiscovered country, looking for and finding the pure land. St. Germain sits back in his chair, observing our thoughts, and then mentions a few words from a Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar, which fit the moment. 
He says with some authority, There's a tide in the affairs of men, which if taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. We're no strangers to miseries. That's the old country we've come from. St. Germain stands and says, Walk with me. He takes us back through the cave of symbols and into the pink and white chamber of crystals and then stops. We gather around him again and he says, This is the question. Will you be my student of the quality of freedom? The ultimate freedom is immortality and cosmic creativity. There's a moment of silence. The key thought that comes to my mind is, what does fortune mean to me? If it means only great wealth, the wealth package still includes the miseries. If fortune means the new world of identifying with love, victory, and freedom, it gradually moves life out of the shallows. So the consistent theme of our God-given free will is again at play. Effort will be required consistently. The outer double doors are open and our escort angels are approaching as we step out onto the snowy ledge into a brisk wind. St. Germain draws us together again for one last comment. It feels like we're a close family and it's going to be difficult to leave. I'll see you here again very soon. Onward. The smile and the twinkle in his eye conveys his confidence in us, which triggers the feeling of wanting to come back here more than anything, because this, this is the new frontier. A moment later, we're up into the starry night sky on the warm arm of our blue angel, and on our way back home to our sleeping body, still tucked in. We'll be back here soon for sure, because the offer is too grand, too infinite to pass up. But I'd like you to ponder what the word fortune means to you as it comes to your waking mind now and then through your intuition. If you need more information, there's more to know about St. Germain that you can study in your waking hours, beginning with our standard reference, The Masters and Their Retreats which you can browse and buy if you want on AscendedMasterSpiritualRetreats.com. You'll find other books about St. Germain there, including St. Germain on Alchemy and St. Germain on Prophecy, and teachings about how to pray and decree with a violet flame, the visualized sacred fire that gently brings freedom from memories of the old world, known and unknown. Next tour, the last in this series, we'll be traveling to the high mountain country of Sri Lanka to meet a very personal friend in the Temple of Comfort, someone who's known you for a long time. Until then, thank you for traveling with me on this extremely fortunate journey to the inner new world of freedom. Always victory. <laughs>